Hello once again. I want to introduce somebody to you tonight that I thought you would enjoy listening to a little bit because uh, the whole issue of the Bible is controversial to some people in higher learning. Is the Bible valid? Did some of these people the Bible speaks about really exist? Now the one I'm going to introduce to you is Dr. Steve Collins from Trinity Seminary, Trinity Southwest University is with us tonight. Please give him a warm welcome. Now, let me just say that Steve, um, Dr. Collins, as his students affectionately call him, um, was my Greek professor at school, and he has a style of teaching the Greek language that uh, makes it much easier. It's a very difficult and exact and accurate language, and he has been able to just sort of funnel it into some principles that make it manageable and usable uh, rather than just taking a class and letting it go. So for that, I'm very grateful, uh, and uh, it's good to have him. You know, Steve is like the real Indiana Jones, and this is what I mean by that. This guy is an archaeologist and has traveled the world, especially the Mideast, and been on many digs and knows a lot about the archaeology of the Middle East, the archaeology of the Bible. And um, he didn't bring it tonight, but he even has a, a cool hat that is very reminiscent of um, Indiana Jones. So all he needs is the bullwhip, and, he, and he's there, seriously. Anyway, Steve, it's great to have you tonight. Well, thank you, Skip. Some people say Indiana Jones minus the hair plus a couple of green chili cheeseburgers. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we'll go with that. Okay, uh, Indy, or Dr. Indy, uh, Steve, uh, I want to uh, shoot something out at you and have you respond to it. Uh, this is a U.S. News and World Report article uh, that disputes the historicity of King David, or at least as he's drawn in the Scripture. Uh, let me just read a couple of paragraphs and have you respond. It talks about a sudden outburst of scholarly research is recasting King David in less than exemplary light. Drawing on archaeological data and scripture, which is your forte, several books and articles have appeared in recent months that make surprising assertions about David and his role in history. Among them, if David existed at all, most scholars now think that he did based on recent archaeological finds. He was little more than a tribal chieftain, not the powerful military ruler described in the Bible. The same goes for his son and successor, the wise King Solomon. Why don't you respond to that article? And this is a real popular theme amongst archaeologists. If you can find uh, any way, it seems, to uh, criticize the biblical text, and to give some kind of archaeological indicator that it, is, it isn't true, uh, that's very popular now. And uh, some of the folks that are mentioned in this article, which uh, I've read also, uh -huh. uh, I know pretty well. The interesting thing is, is that a lot of people don't realize that the Bible is the only true historiographical record that we have from the entire ancient Near East. So I always ask these folks, if you're trying to draw another picture other than what the Bible draws of David or Solomon, what possible historical record are you going to use? The only thing they can really draw on is a lot of imagination. And if they have an anti-God, anti-biblical perspective, then of course their picture of King David is going to be a whole lot different than the Bible's picture of King David. 
The fact of the matter is, is that the Bible is a very accurate historical document, which gives us a true picture of King David and his son Solomon, and their imagination, using uh, what they say is archaeological evidence, is just simply whimsical. And so, um, by the way, in the article, they talk about King David is just sort of a, a murderous chieftain. Right. In fact, it likens him to Saddam Hussein. He says he's the guy you wouldn't want to have over for dinner. Well, if you were a Philistine or an Ammonite, I think that would be true. <laughs> uh, from their perspective, I think David was not a very good guy. But, of course, uh, he, he um, did some pretty terrible things. The Bible records this. Yes. See, the difference between the biblical record and, say, the records of Egypt or Assyria or the Babylonians is that the Bible tells us the truth, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm -hmm. For example, you remember the, when, when David uh, had committed adultery and then committed murder uh, to cover it up? Uh, he uh, had a little prophet by the name of Nathan shaking his finger underneath his nose saying, You are the man. Yes and cause David to repent. Yes. I can't imagine some prophet of Amun-Ra in Egypt shaking his finger under the nose of Ramesses the Great, uh, telling Ramesses that there's something wrong with you. Yes. You're a sinner. Uh, off with that priest's head. Now, uh, in this article, it talks about how they think that biblical authors have sort of recast him or sort of um, sanitized King David for the biblical text. But you just brought up something important, is that is the Bible tells about all the bad things he did. If it was supposed to be a flattering biography of David, they didn't do a very good job. Yeah, the Egyptians were real good about sanitizing the history of their kings. They only told the good stuff. If they told the bad stuff, that would invite rebellion in the provinces and all sorts of bad things internally. So the Egyptians always gave us positive propaganda. So did everybody else. The Bible is the only document in the ancient Near East written about kings hmm. of Israel, in particular, that tells us everything they did right and everything that they did wrong. That's the only example that we can point to in ancient Near Eastern literature where that's the case. The Bible paints a pretty ugly picture of King David, actually, and uh, is not a whitewash at all. Now, every, uh, every few years, it seems, this is a popular notion to bring out to the press that we found some discovery that would dispute biblical claims, but they don't really say what it is. And, for instance, uh, people disputed the, the historicity of Pilate till they did the Caesarea dig, the Pool of Bethesda till they actually found it in Jerusalem. You've been on a lot of digs in the Middle East. Can you bring up some others that have not negated but substantiated the biblical record? Yeah, let's just stay on the theme of King David. Ten years ago... Most of these same scholars listed in this article would say categorically that David and Solomon were mythical characters and did not exist at all. Uh, within, within this last decade, however, uh, several discoveries have come to light. One in particular up at Tel Dan, you've been there, Skip, many times. Mm -hmm. Up at Tel Dan in northern Israel, a small basalt uh, black rock stela uh, inscription came to light from about the latter part of the 10th, early part of the 9th century B.C., which is just a little bit after the time of King David. And it refers to the king of Israel as of the house of David, mm. which is a very interesting uh, inscription. Well, first of all, the scholars took that and they said, no, no, it can't say the house of David. It has to be the name of some heretofore unknown city. 
And, of course, about the same year, it was discovered in Jerusalem, uh, a little ostracon, a little piece of pottery with an inscription on it that referred to the house of Yahweh or the house of Jehovah. And uh, the point was this. They said it wasn't the name of David in the Tel Dan inscription because it didn't have a little word divider, a little dot between the house and David. just said, Beit David house David, but no word divider. Well, they said, has no word divider, therefore it's not house of David, it's just some other word that we don't really know what it means. Well, then comes along this little ostracon, and in it, the house of Yahweh, which is very clear, has no word divider. So, <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, that little theory flew right out the window. And so, all of a sudden, for the first time in history, outside the Bible, David was a real character. Um, then, just a couple of years ago, Kenneth Kitchen of the University of Liverpool, one of the great Egyptologists in the world today, discovered amongst the uh, inscriptions of Shawshank, who is biblical Shishak, uh, who you recall uh, uh, plundered the temple under uh, Solomon's son Rehoboam. He actually refers to the heights of David. So he refers to the central hill country of Canaan as the heights of David. And, of course, this is some time after David was dead. So David was still famous to the Egyptians. And they referred to Jerusalem as the heights of King David. Now, uh, Steve, in all of your digs, this is your field of expertise. This is one of your many disciplines, archaeology. Have you ever uncovered something that contradicted or controverted a biblical text? Oh, not at all. In fact, uh, what we're constantly finding is uh, are things that contradict the critics of the Bible almost consistently. Mm. Uh, most recently, uh, over the last six or seven years, uh, our excavations up at the City of Ai, where critics had said, well, the City of Ai didn't exist. Uh, couldn't, Joshua couldn't have destroyed it because no such city existed during that period of time. Well, interesting enough, uh, interestingly enough, we spent the last seven years excavating that very site and demonstrating pretty dramatically that it was indeed the site of I destroyed by Joshua. So mm -hmm. there are a lot of little things like that, some big things that continually uh, demonstrate the historical uh, validity of the Bible, but then also uh, crack and destroy and dismantle the, the critical view of the Bible. Now, just in closing, because you operate a university here, that allows in-class work as well as internet work that you're going to be offering. We were talking about that before the study, and a lot of people are here in the local area. Unfortunately, this is going to be aired around the country. However, you're going to offer some internet uh, capability. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, our website's just now going up for our um, distance education. So anything we do on campus, any of the master's uh, doctorate or even bachelor's degree programs that we do can be gotten through uh, distance education uh, through the internet and uh, that site is coming up pretty soon. So if people have a computer they can log on and actually take courses through the seminary right online. That's exactly right. Excellent. Tell us your web address. TSUABQ.org. TSUABQ.org. Great. Steve, thanks for coming tonight. Great to have you. Thank you, Skip. God bless you. If Christian love for others is the highest command, how do we respond to our enemies? Is revenge ever justified? 
In the life of David, we discover a variety of responses to the pressure of opposition. How David responded to these enemies is very instructive. Goliath, the Philistines, and King Saul all qualified as enemies of David, and each received different treatment. In particular, David's dealing with King Saul is very interesting because David chose not to throw the spear back at Saul. Listen to this thought from Gene Edwards in the book, Tale of Three Kings. If the king in your life acts unfairly, you'll relate to this advice about what to do with a crazy king in your life. First, recognize this immutable fact. You cannot tell, none of us can, who is the Lord's anointed and who is not. Some kings appear to be a Saul, but may well be a David. Who can know? No man is wise enough ever to break that riddle. Is this man the Lord's anointed? And if so, is he after the order of Saul? Memorize that question very well. You may have to ask it of yourself 10,000 times, especially if you are a citizen of a realm whose king just might be mad. Asking this question may not seem difficult, but it is, especially when you are dodging spears and being tempted to throw one back and being encouraged by others to do just that. And all your rationality and sanity and logic and intelligence and common sense agree. But remember, you know only the question, not the answer. No one knows the answer except God, and He never tells. And now, let's turn to 1 Samuel 23 and begin our study. Well, there you have it, 1 Samuel 23. If you brought a Bible, you were thinking, because it is a Bible study. 1 Samuel chapter 23. Of the so-called seven deadly sins, Probably anger is the most fun, especially when it's deserved, revenge. We all can justify revenge. In fact, there was a guy who made a product for $3.99 that he called revenge. It's a little bottle that has 75 squirts of a disinfectant that is foul smelling, just stinks, and it was intended to irritate the eyes and the nose of the person it sprayed around. Now, it was, it was developed because he was tired of people smoking. He got mad at people invading his space, lighting up a cigarette, blowing smoke, so he decided that he would make something called revenge. People lit up a cigarette, he'd just spray it in their direction and it would stink and irritate them and it's kind of like there's a dose of your own medicine. And this thing really sold, revenge, for $3.99. It was on the internet. We speak of loving people. We speak of loving humanity. Loving humanity is an easy concept. Oh yes, love, world peace, visualize world peace. I saw somebody with that bumper sticker on a car driving like a maniac, angry, honking. He couldn't even visualize it in his own lane. <laughs> it's easy to love humanity. It's, it's my neighbor that I have difficulty with. It's like Linus in the famous theological cartoon called Peanuts, who said, I love mankind, it's just people I can't stand. Well, David gives us a little bit of a lesson 
in loving our enemies. And get this, his enemy was his father-in-law. Now before you nudge your wife or husband next to you, you go, see? Here's a guy who was alienated with his own family. Now Jesus said, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you and spitefully use you. Now that looks good on paper. It looks good when we underline it. Oh, we like to underline it. We'll even memorize it. But to actually pull it off. And I had a woman come to me. We were talking about loving and forgiving. And she talked about her ex-husband and how bad he was and foul he was and filthy he was. And she said, it's hard for me to love him. I, he's not my friend. So I said, well, is he your enemy? She goes, yeah, he's my enemy. I said, well, you know, Jesus said, love your enemy. So love him like an enemy. But that looks good on paper. It looks good theoretically. But to put it into practice is much more difficult. And revenge is much more fun than forgiving and loving our enemies, evening the score. We feel better about that, tit for tat, eye for eye. But revenge is like poison. It poisons the soul of the person who enacts it. In fact, what it does is it will lower you down to their level. If somebody does something against you that is evil, wrongful, hateful, spiteful, Though it might feel good at first to get back at them, you are lowering yourself down to that level. Now before we jump right into our text tonight, in 1 Samuel chapter 23, we have a couple of internet questions that go along with this. Uh, I don't know exactly who they're from, it wasn't given to me, but this question is, how do you handle authority in a church where the pastor is preaching aberrant theology and runs a leadership of yes-men. Now, I don't know who and what part of the country or world this is from, but how do you handle authority in a church where the pastor is preaching aberrant theology and runs a leadership of yes-men? Not knowing the background of this, I would have to first question what is referred to when this person says aberrant theology. Does that mean truly aberrant in the sense of comparing it to the scripture or aberrant in the sense of I don't agree with it. So we have to determine, first of all, is it aberrant? And then second, how aberrant is it? Is it essential Christian doctrine or is it non-essential? In other words, does it touch the deity of Christ, the person and nature of God, the uh, atoning work of Christ? Are we saved by grace versus works? Those kind of issues. Or does it deal with other non-essential issues, modes of baptism, church membership, attire, music, etc. So we have to determine that. And then number three, I would say you need to determine in this church what is, what is the, the chain of command or what is the method of appeal. Is there a way that you can bring this up in an environment to discuss it? The best thing is just to go right to the person and discuss those points that you consider aberrant and, and Take the Bible with you. That's the best way. And then fourth, I suppose I would say you vote with your feet. I mean, people do anyway. If people aren't being fed or if they believe it doesn't agree with the Scripture, most people who have any biblical sense wouldn't continue to go there. They would vote with their feet and honor the Lord, take their family to a place where the Bible is truly being taught in a balanced way. Now we have another question from the Internet. Again, the name isn't given. I don't know who it's from, but uh, if you're listening... Thank you for writing. 
Uh, it says, I have a boss who professes to be a Christian, but his whole subset of behaviors with the majority of his employees is antithetical to Christian beliefs. Anytime he is questioned, he gets very angry and retaliates. How do I stand up for myself but still honor God, or excuse me, honor God's will? Well, you know, Matthew 18 is pretty clear, is it not, that if a brother uh, sins against you, you are to go to him, Jesus said, alone. Alone. You go to him alone. The first thing you don't do is tell everyone in the office how concerned you are about that creep. Please pray for me because I am concerned this guy's out to lunch. No, Jesus said, go to the person and go alone. Then ask that person in love, do you consider me a brother? I consider you my brother in Christ. Do you consider me a brother? And do we have the freedom to talk? There's an issue I'd like to bring up, but I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to violate my position. I don't want to usurp any rank here, but I do want to bring up brother to brother, not employee to employer, an issue that I would like to have your ear on. Can I talk to you? And, and then I would say, be obedient to the Lord. Be obedient to the Lord and let the chips fall where they may. Now, I know you might be thinking and hearing that. Well, what if it jeopardizes my job? I would rather be obedient to the Lord and have it jeopardize my job than not be obedient to the Lord and live with every night, every day, I should have done that. That would have been pleasing to God. So I would say do what God tells you to do. Approach the person, but do what the Bible says. Do it in love. Speak the truth in love. Now, there's two parts of that. Speak the truth and do it in love. Not just sloppy agape, I love you, you're just wonderful no matter what. And it's not just speak the truth, you can do it in a scathing way, but speak the truth and do it in a loving manner that would honor Christ. And assure that person of your love for him as you do it. Well, let's get into uh, verse 1, chapter 23. We'll get a handle on how to deal with authority especially harsh authority, especially somebody who has turned out to now be your enemy. And here's the first thing you could do. We're going to get to it right away. Keep relief on hand. Keep relief on hand. That is, have your spiritual resources that provide you relief in this situation with harsh authority. Keep it close by. Keep relief on hand. Verse 1 then they told David, saying, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Kalah, and they are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Kalah. Do you notice something right off the bat? David is not even the king, and he's asking God if he wants him to go save a city that belongs to whose jurisdiction? Saul. This is Saul's job. Saul is the king. Second, do you ever see Saul inquiring of the Lord? No. He just sort of goes out and runs roughshod over everything and everyone. David, not the king, sees somebody in need and distress, and he prays about it. And the Lord speaks to him. How does the Lord speak to him? Well, we can infer from the last chapter that because 
this priest named Abiathar who escaped that massacre, you remember, at Nob when all those priests were killed by Doeg. He escaped, went with the ephod, which would include the breastplate, which would include the Urim and the Thummim. Have you ever heard those terms before? The Urim and the Thummim. I want you to memorize those words and say them fast ten times. Urim Thummim, Urim Thummim. It's going to be hard to do. It's a white and a black stone, scholars think, some do. And it was a way of ascertaining the will of the Lord done by a priest when the king would ask, should I do this or not? It was sort of a, and, and, and this is a, a, a probably a bad description, it was like a sanctified dice roll with these two stones, but God was behind this. This wasn't Las Vegas, man. This was Judea. <laughs> Through whatever means of a stone showing up black or white or glowing as some have supposed, they were able to tell the will of God. David inquires using Abiathar, who has the ephod and no doubt the breastplate and these two stones, does God want me to do this? And so he does it. Now go down to verse 7 because in the meantime, Saul hears about it. I mean, how, how do you take 600 men and go fight a battle and not have the guy who's trying to kill you hear about it? You can't hide. And Saul hears and Saul attacks. Now get this, verse 7. Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Then Saul called all of the people together for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. How interesting. You see, even disobedient believers or unbelievers sometimes will sometimes misinterpret things as being of God. Some weird thing happens. David's in that town. That's a sign from God. He, he went to Keilah. This is perfect. This is proof that God is with me and wants me to attack. And I have watched unbelievers use situations going, ooh, that's a sign from God. That must mean something. That's what Saul is doing. And he's wrong. He misinterprets this. Well, David goes in, saves the city. What is that? Some weird jingle sound. Wherever it is, attack it and destroy it. <laughs> Do you hear it? Well, maybe it's a sign. I don't know. You see the difference right away between David and Saul. David tries to save the city. Saul, the king, who ought to be the protector, goes to attack the city of his own people to destroy them to get at David. You remember that Saul was called a tall individual, taller in stature than anybody else. So here we have a tall man with a very short character. He looks very impressive, but he's a wimp spiritually. Very weak, very small character. Go down to verse 14. David stayed in the strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains because he found out Saul's coming to get him, inquired of the Lord. The Lord said, yep, he's coming to get you. 
So he stayed in the strongholds in the wilderness, remained in the mountains of the wilderness of Ziph, providing the background of writing Psalm 63. Oh, by the way, just so you know, what, what is David doing as he's finding one cave, then another cave, then a forest, then a desert? As he's running from Saul, what is he doing? Well, he's journaling. He keeps a journal with him, and he writes prayers, songs, and you can read them in the book of Psalms. Psalm 63 was probably written as he's out in the wilderness going to Ziph. It'll tell you what his feelings are in his prayer life during that time as he journals. Now notice it says, Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So David saw that Saul had come to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. I said that, number one, the first step in handling harsh authority, or your enemies in this case, is to keep relief on hand nearby. What is that? We have to find what that is. And if you're doing that on purpose, shame on you. It's backstage, I think, Neil. Um, great. Thank you. Speak, Lord. Your servant hears. Notice verse 14 for just a moment. It says, Saul sought him every day. Put yourself in David's sandals. You go to one place, set up camp. You're just hunkering down for a good night's sleep. Somebody comes to you and says, Saul found out you're here. He's coming. So he breaks camp. And he goes somewhere else, sets up camp, hunkering down. Two days later, Saul knows you're here again. He found you. He's on your tail, David. And you move from place to place every single day. That's got to wear on you. Where did relief come from? From his good old friend Jonathan. Jonathan shows up, and it says, verse uh, 16, he strengthened his hand in God. That is, he, he looked David in the baby blues or baby browns, whatever they were, and pointed his thoughts back to God. David, trust the Lord, man. Be confident. God is your strength. God is your stronghold. Because no doubt, David's spiritual edge was worn out. And the friendship of Jonathan sharpened that dull edge. He was the iron that sharpens iron. So a friend sharpens the countenance of another friend, Proverbs 27. What I love about Jonathan is his approach. He's a true friend. He doesn't go up to David and say, David, you disappoint me. I remember when you fought Goliath. I heard those spiritual words coming out of your mouth. You were so committed. You said to that big old giant, the Lord's going to deliver you into my hands. You've defied the armies of the living God. But now look at you, David. You're so discouraged. You're so pathetic. What about all those psalms you wrote, man? Practice what you preach. None of that. 
He knew here's a discouraged man, and he points his thoughts or strengthens his hand in God. The friendship started on a spiritual note. They made a covenant some time back. They both loved the love that each other had in the Lord. And that's what brought them together, their mutual love for God. Listen to what Stuart Briscoe wrote. The secret of lasting friendships isn't simply to find someone like yourself. It's to develop a heart for God and seek others who love him too. Find somebody else who loves the Lord. Get together with that person so that that gal, that guy is an example to you of loving the Lord. It'll strengthen you. Strengthen his hand. Point your thoughts back to God. By the way, this is the task of a good counselor. A good counselor, no matter what you're going through, will turn your thoughts to God's solution, to God's word, to a place of change. That's a good counselor. A good counselor will tell you what you need to hear, not always what you want to hear. Some people come in for counseling because they want to hear something. They want an affirmation of what they're doing is okay. Even if it's sinful and wrong, just tell me you understand and it's okay for me to pursue this course. Now, if a counselor says, yes, it is, it's fine, I understand, you're good enough, you're nice enough, and people like you. That's not a good counselor. A good counselor will speak the truth in love, pointing you to God to this place of change. Well, there's trouble again. David is chased after this episode that we just read. He's in Ziph, but the mountain men, that's down on the hillside outside of Hebron, the hills going down toward the Dead Sea, the men of that city ratted to Saul that David is with them. So David has to flee to a town called, it's written right down here, Maon, where he writes Psalm 54. Saul keeps pursuing him, and now look at verse 29. David went from there and dwelt in the strongholds at En Gedi. Now, En Gedi means the place or the spring of the kid, the spring of the young goats, because the place is, is crawling with these ibexes, these goat-like creatures with long horns that meander through the limestone caves in that area. Now, in Getty, I've been there many times on the western shore of the Dead Sea. It's one of my favorite places, by the way, because the Dead Sea is so barren, and in Getty, there's an oasis in there. Freshwater springs form waterfalls, and if you start at the Dead Sea and you start climbing upwards, you go through several waterfalls, and if you go beyond even where the tourists are, you can get to the source of that, the spring, way up above that, in Solomon's time, there were vineyards in the area. It speaks about the vineyards of Engedi in the Song of Solomon. And it's a place of refreshing, cool water on a hot day. It feels great. Well, that's where David hung out, in one of the many caves that potmark that area, the limestone caves. Look at chapter 24 now. Now it happened. When Saul had returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. 
Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave. And I couldn't tell you which cave it was. Every time I go to En Gedi, they go, well, which cave is it? And I say, well, there's so many. You know, David didn't write any graffiti on the wall that we can find, so we don't know. David was here. <laughs> so he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went into the cave to attend his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. I'm going to show you another principle for handling harsh authority, or in this case, handling your enemies. Number one, I mentioned keep relief on hand. Number two, keep revenge in check. And you're going to find out how to do that. Keep revenge in check. Because David has opportunity for revenge. Picture the scene. Saul is there with his men. By the way, David's outnumbered. David's got 600 men. Saul has 3,000 chosen men. That, are, that means great soldiers. Remember the description of David's men a couple of chapters back? Everyone who is discontented, everyone who is in debt, everyone who is discouraged, they all came to David and said, we'll fight for you. <laughs> Great. But he received them. That became his band of mighty men. He's outnumbered five to one. And the Bible, as we mentioned with Dr. Collins, is a very real book. Saul's traveling there. It says here that he stepped into the cave to attend to his needs. That, in other words, nature was calling and he didn't want to, he had men around. So he says, excuse me, nature's calling, gentlemen. I'm going to go into the cave and attend to my needs. So he goes into the cave and has no idea there's 600 men in the restroom. <laughs> it's dark in there. They're quiet. Here he comes. He's coming into our cave. Now talk about an opportunity for revenge. Here's your enemy who's seeking to kill you. And he comes walking into the cave, and he's attending to his needs. He's in a very vulnerable spot. He has no soldiers around him, no defenses. It's very dark. This is David's golden opportunity. And maybe as he's watching Saul enter that cave, he's thinking back in his mind's eye to the three times he almost got pinned to the wall by that maniac who tried to kill him. And he thought, maybe this could be the Lord. This is, this is the will of God. Oh, how easy revenge is to rationalize, isn't it? Especially when we drive. When we drive, when I drive, let me, let me do this for me now. When I drive and I see how other people drive, and it's, it's, pray for me, this is one of the toughest areas of my walk. Because I talk to other drivers. I'm giving them counsel on how to do it right and what they're doing wrong. Move over. This is the passing lane. Get over on that right side. Don't go in this lane. Slow down, speed up, put your blinker on. And then I think, you know, if I honk the horn, he needs to know. If I scare her, 
it's her own fault. I find that revenge when I drive, it's easy for me to rationalize it. There was a maid who got fired from her job. The family had her work for several years, let her go for some lame reason. She thought the job was her security, and she was angry. So as she was leaving the house on the final day after being fired, she reaches into her purse, takes out a $5 bill, and tosses it to Fido, the dog. Throws it on the floor. That's for you, puppy. The family asks, what was that for? She said, because I never forget a friend that was for helping me all those years clean the dishes. <laughs> and now I, I'll be honest with you, I listen to that and go, yeah, yeah. That's human nature, man. We love it. Eye for an eye philosophy. It's the way of the carnal man, not the spiritual. So keep revenge in check. He has opportunity for revenge, but what happens? Well, look at verse 4. It gets worse. There's social pressure. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. What? That's very odd. David's men say, see, this is the Lord. It seems like coincidence, but, but David, we believe it's providence. We think that the Lord brought him into the cave so that you could kill him. Now, they make the same mistake Saul just made. Saul looked at Keilah and said, I'm going to attack because the Lord delivered my enemy into that place. And they're going, David, the Lord delivered your enemy to you. They saw this as the will of God. This is common with immature and superstitious believers to read God into things without checking Scripture, their motives, counsel, etc. You're driving down the street. Your car breaks down. You say, huh, it must be God's will for me to get a brand new car. <laughs> You're a guy and the girl in the mall smiles at you. And you think, wow, it's a sign. This is the one. She smiled at me. This could be my future wife. Of course, this is if you're single, I hope you're thinking this. No, I don't even hope you're thinking that if you're single. You can misread certain things into situations that aren't the will of God. Basically, bottom line, God gets blamed for a lot of stuff that he has nothing to do with. I've read weird stories of people climbing up flagpoles naked because God told them to all the way to the son of Sam, who killed people because Jesus spoke to him from a barking dog. God gets the rap for all sorts of insane behavior as people thought God was speaking to them. So David now has the added pressure, already feelings of revenge that are welling up inside of him, and the pressure from his buddies who are saying, kill him. So easy for David to be like Punch's Pilate. Remember when Jesus stood before Pilate and the crowds were saying, crucify him, crucify him, and Pilate said, no, he hasn't done anything wrong. 
I find no fault in this man. Crucify him, crucify him. And Luke tells us, the voices of the people and of the chief priests prevailed. He knew in his heart, in his conscience, what was right, but the voices of the people prevailed. But David withheld. In fact, David goes up to him, cuts off a corner of his robe. Now, look at verse 5, because it, it gets better. And this is how he keeps his revenge in check. I mentioned that as the second principle. This is how he does it. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. Man, this is a sensitive kid. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing that he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. This guy has a tender conscience. He cut a robe piece off. I mean, now, first of all, just picture the scene. Saul's in there relieving himself. He's on his haunches. David walks up to him. You're smiling because it's funny. Snip. Goes away with this little piece of cloth. And I'm sure his men are going, What is this? What are you doing? Then he goes back and he feels guilty and confesses his feeling to his men. How do you think they thought he was as a leader at this point? Man, I just cut his robe, man. This is horrible. I can't believe I did that. It shows me something of his character. David is sensitive in his conscience toward little things. What we would call little sins. The things that we wouldn't really care about. It's like, so what? It's a, he can get a new robe. He's a king. Big deal. But it's not my robe. It belongs to him. I had no right to take the king's robe and cut it. He's the king. He's the Lord's anointed. David is sensitive to little sins, and he confesses it to his men. Now, I'll tell you, this is good. It's good because if you're sensitive to little things, you'll be sensitive to bigger things. If you're desensitized in your conscience toward little things, little sins, white lies, white theft, you'll rationalize bigger stuff. If you can take paper clips from your company and not feel guilty about it, soon you'll be taking their pencils and pens and maybe a stapler, and then later on a copy machine. <laughs> they got four or five copy machines, so what? You know how much money is lost every year in corporate America because of office theft? That kind of rationalization? Unbelievable amounts. And pretty soon, you will graduate to the next step. And the next step, you could be embezzling fifty, sixty, seventy-five, dollars $100,000 from a company because you've learned to rationalize it in the little things. And so, hand in hand with having a godly heart is having a sensitive conscience. And if you don't have one, pray that God will give you one. Pray that God will resensitize it. You know, Paul would often say, that he was a man who lived with a clear conscience. He said in the Bible, I always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. 
This is something his enemies thought was impossible. He stood before the Sanhedrin, Acts 23, I believe it was. The first words out of his mouth, I have always lived in good conscience before God and to this day. And the high priest heard that and said, slap him on the face for saying that. And of course, Saul got really angry and said, God's going to slap you, you whitewashed wall. Now, I don't know how that sat with his conscience saying that, but a sensitive conscience. Now, some people have an oversensitive conscience. They're guilty about everything, anything at all. They're overly sensitive. They're people pleasers. They have unrealistic expectations set for themselves or by others. They're insecure in their position. Other people don't have that problem. They are insensitive in their conscience. They don't feel any guilt when they should. God can't get through. They've hardened their hearts. The Bible speaks about those who have a conscience that's been seared with a hot iron, or literally cauterized is the word, just like a surgeon would use a cauterizing tool and stop the blood flow by hardening or cauterizing, burning tissue. You can cauterize your heart, your conscience. The balance isn't an oversensitive or a desensitized conscience, but having a tuned conscience. Tuned to the will of God, living before God and men in the light of the principles of Scripture. That is a having a healthy sense of right and wrong. So what I like about David is who Saul was didn't affect who he was. He didn't act one way with Saul and one way with somebody else. He had his moments. Yes, he sinned. Yes, he failed. But who Saul was didn't change who David was. He's God's anointed. I ain't, I ain't touching him. He didn't say ain't. That's not in the original version. But who someone else was wouldn't change who he was. That's character. I heard a story about a guy who was a gentleman. It seems like there's not many of those left. But this guy was a gentleman. He always opened doors for ladies. And there was a lady coming into the bank, and he was there first at the door, and he opened the door, and, and the lady stopped. She was a liberated lady. She said, don't open the door for me just because I'm a woman. And he smiled very gently and sweetly, said, ma'am, I'm not. I'm opening the door for you because I'm a gentleman. That's who I am. And I like that. This is who David was. He wasn't up and down. That's who he was. Look at down at verse 8 now. I've given you two principles. Keep relief on hand. That is, he had his men around him, and he had his friend Jonathan in the nick of time. Keep revenge in check. And we showed how he did that. The third one is keep restoration in mind. If you're dealing with somebody who's out to get you, angry toward you, harsh with you, turn it around. Keep restoration, reconciliation in mind. Look how David turns this around, verse 8. David also arose afterward, went out of the cave, and called out to Saul, saying, My lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth, and he bowed down. Here's a guy trying to kill him, and David goes, Hey, king! What a shock this must have been to Saul. 
he bows down. With respect, he showed love. With respect, David showed love. This is how he turns it around. He bows down to him. Do you see David watching, marching out of the cave, going like this with his little piece of cloth? Saul! Then he bows down. Why did he bow down? To show respect. Why did he show respect? He showed respect because he loved Saul. I don't think he liked Saul, but he loved Saul. Now, that, that sounds like a glib aphorism, that you can, you can love someone and not like them. It's true, though. You are called to love everyone, even your enemies. You don't have to like them. I don't think it's possible to like everybody. I don't like everybody. I'll be honest with you. But I'm called to love them and to dre- demonstrate the love of Christ to them. I'm called to do that. He did it because he loved him. That is, David is acting not on his feelings, but on his will. You know, if you always act on your feelings, and listen carefully, if you always treat people based on how you feel, you're not going to love them very long. You have to deal with people as an act of will rather than feeling. Jesus said, you have heard that it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's feelings. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Hey, when is the last time you blessed somebody who cursed you? In fact, I would suggest you try that. When somebody's yelling at you and they're just mad at you, to stop and say calmly, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? Because I don't want any hard feelings between us. Now, their first reaction is going to drive them nuts. And inwardly, you might like that. (laughs) All right. He's really twisted now because of this. But, But say, Lord, just help my motive now. A soft answer turns away wrath. There there was some studies done at Kenyon College about anger. And and they said the obvious, that when somebody yells at you, it is almost universally uh, acknowledged that the natural response is to yell back. But Les Giblin, in that study, he's the guy who conducted it, Kenyon College, said, quote, you can use this knowledge, he calls it scientific knowledge, to keep another person from becoming angry. Control the other person's tone of voice by your own voice. Studies have proven that if you keep your voice soft, you will not become angry. Psychology has accepted, listen to this, as scientific, the old biblical injunction, a soft answer turns away wrath. A soft answer. Saul. Talk about a soft answer. It was like no answer. Quiet. Down to verse 9. He does something else in seeking restoration. He's honest. He doesn't just bow down and go back. He sets the record straight. In honesty, he sets the record straight. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm. Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you, but my eye spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, 
Yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. David bows. He shows love. He shows respect. In love, he shows respect. But with honesty, he sets the record straight. He doesn't just go back into the cave, shrink back in the cave. He confronts Saul. He brings up the problem. There's a confrontation. Now, I think that our tendency, if somebody does something against us, is perhaps to say, well, we'll just let well enough alone. I won't even mention it. I won't even bring it up. It'll all work out. But listen carefully. Though we must respect and we must love, honest confrontation is needed where sin is ongoing. Honest confrontation is needed where sin is ongoing, even among friends. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, I already quoted it, but here it is again, Matthew 18, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. You owe it to someone who is sinning against you to tell them in love, to confront them in love. In Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6, faithful are the wounds of what? A friend. But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You know, an enemy wants to stab you in the back, but a friend will carefully stab you in the front. That is, he'll come right up to you He's your friend. She's your friend. You know each other. There is a relationship. They love you, and they, they're concerned about your welfare. They want to see you strengthened, matured. They won't hide it. They'll confront you, as Jesus said, as David did. Later on, we'll find out that David was approached himself by Nathan, the prophet, after he sinned with Bathsheba. And as was already mentioned before when we did our interview, you are the man. You've sinned against God and against these people. Paul did it to Peter. Peter was duplicitous, filled with hypocrisy. He didn't want to hang out with the Gentiles as long as the Judaizers came from Jerusalem and were watching him. So David played favorites two different times. And Paul said in Galatians, I rebuke Peter to his face. That's a friend, face to face. Not behind the back, not gossiping, face to face. Now let me just tell you something. If you do that, if you honestly confront people, there's going to be some people that don't like that, don't understand it, and say, that's not loving, that's not Christian, that's not New Testament. <laughs> the only ones who will say that are unbelievers or immature believers. Mature believers will see the confrontation and even the discipline as loving and mature because you're putting yourself on the line. It's not easy to do that. The easiest thing to do is let well enough alone. But it won't be well enough very long. It'll fester. So David confronts him. And then look at verse 12. It's a third principle here of seeking restoration. With integrity, he entrusted himself and his enemy to God. With integrity, he entrusted his enemy to God. Listen to the language. David says, let the Lord judge between you and me. Let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. 
As the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? In other words, I am perfectly harmless, just like a dead dog can't attack anybody, or a flea isn't going to really hurt you or alter your lifestyle. I'm harmless. Here's the king with 3,000 chosen men. You're coming up after a dead dog, somebody who wouldn't kill you, wouldn't harm you, had a chance. All I did is cut off the end of your, end of your robe, and I felt guilty. Therefore, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. David refused to act personally. He said twice, verse 12 and 13, My hand shall not be against you. Well, that takes integrity to withhold retaliation. It takes immaturity to give in to retaliation. It takes integrity to hold it back. How long can you hold a grudge? A lifetime. I meet people all the time who are prisoners. They're suffering. They're eaten alive because they're so bitter and so angry and they haven't let it go. In fact, they're, they're worse off than the person they're angry with. Because that kind of bitterness and anger and revenge, there's always two victims in revenge. But there's only one who is eaten alive by it. And that's the person who's holding on to it. I read a story about a man in Tokyo arrested by the police. He was arrested for this reason. Fourteen years before his arrest, he was not accepted in a graduate program by a professor at a college. He wanted a master's level degree or a postgraduate degree, I forget which. He was arrested because he wasn't accepted and for 14 years, every night, he made harassing phone calls. For 14 years. About 10 calls a night between 8 p.m. and 2 a.m., leaving it on his answering machine, harassing him for 14 years. The police estimate the guy made about 50,000 phone calls. Talk about not letting it go. He was eaten alive by it. I'm sure the professor, after a few years, it was entertaining. But that guy was eaten alive because he held on to it. But David refused to act personally. And as we see here, he let the Lord plead his case. He let the Lord plead his case. He said, the Lord will judge. Judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. And by the way, God will do a much better job than you can pleading your case. Oh, but i got to go set the record straight, man. i got to go in there, and i got to let them know a few things. In fact, I'm going to tell them, and I'm going to... My, my reputation is being ruined. So... Jesus made himself of no reputation. He was called all sorts of things. I'll hear things every now and then in this community about me that aren't true. Now, they don't get into other communities necessarily where we're on the radio, but every time there's a, a local community of, of believers, it seems like Christians especially just love to spread untrue things. for some, But I'll, hear, I'll get wind of them. And, and now, it used to just bother me. Who said that? Where did they live? (laughs) 
Now, I'll listen to it, and, and oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, it's, it's entertaining. It's, oh, really, they said that. That's a new one. I haven't heard that one. That's cool. <laughs> I had a friend tell me years ago, and I'll always remember it. He said, if you want to defend yourself, God will let you. David said, the Lord is my defense. He's a much better defender than I am. I'll let the Lord plead my case, he said here. So what a contrast. Here's David's men saying, go get him, David. And here's David saying, go get him, God. <laughs> I'm not going to touch you. I'm going to let the Lord deal with you. And you see in his life, the Lord did a good job. Dealt with him the way he ought to be dealt with. We close the study tonight. We'll read quickly from verse 16 down to verse 22. It brings us to the, the fourth and final step in handling enemies and in handling harsh authoritarian leadership. The first one is keep relief on hand. The second one is keep revenge in check. The third one is keep restoration in mind. Try to reconcile. And fourth, keep righteousness your aim. I'm doing this because it's right. I'm doing this because God will be pleased with it. Keep righteousness your aim. So it was, verse 16, when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, that Saul said, Is that your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I am, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. You have shown this day how you have dealt well with me, for when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy... Will he let him go away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you surely will be king, that your kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul, and Saul went home, but David... And his men went up into the stronghold. Why? Why didn't he go home too? If Saul's a weep, I'm sorry, David, man, I repent. Because he knew this guy. That's why. Yeah, great. You cry of your little cry. Go home now. I'm going to do what God told me to do, but I'm not trusting you either. I'm going to go right back into that cave because you're schizophrenic. <laughs> this has happened before. I'll tell you what, retaliation costs. Restoration and righteousness pays rich dividends. David, you're more righteous than I am. And David did it to please the Lord. Huh. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 16, verse 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. David was pleasing God, acting righteously. His enemy finally comes around and goes, David, you're more righteous than I am. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Every year when we go, every year, it's been a couple years, every time we go to Israel, and who knows when we'll be back at this rate with what's going on, but we'll be back. We go to Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem is a museum of the Holocaust in Jerusalem. Outside the museum is a 
avenue of trees planted called the Avenue of the Righteous, where they commemorate, commemorate non-Jews, Gentiles, who have helped liberate Jews in their cause. And there's a tree planted for Corey Ten Boom, who hid with her family Jews in their house in Harlem, the Netherlands, during the Nazi occupation. They were arrested and taken to concentration camps. Corrie ten Boom, after she was released after the war, was speaking to a congregation one night about the love of God and about forgiveness and reconciliation and loving your enemies, this very topic. And a man walked up to her with an outstretched hand, and she recognized him but couldn't place him. When she did place him, the thoughts crashed down upon her like a ton of bricks. She said, oh my goodness, that's the Nazi guard in my concentration camp who used to jeer me and my sister, kicked me and my sister, visually raped my sister and I when we had to go through the delousing showers. And the hatred and vengeance that welled up inside of her, and now this man has his hand outstretched, tears in this ex-Nazi's eyes saying, Will you forgive me? Listen to her words. She writes, I stood there with coldness clutching at my heart, but I knew that the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. I prayed, Jesus, help me. Woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and I experienced an incredible thing. The current started in my shoulder, raced down into my arms, and sprang into our clutched hands. Then this warm reconciliation seemed to flood my whole being, bringing me to tears. I forgive you, brother, I cried with my whole heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard, the former prisoner. I had never known the love of God so intensely as I did in that moment Listen to her final words. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover the prisoner was you. Father, as we close tonight, some of us are still imprisoned with bitterness from the past. We're holding on to something. We haven't learned these lessons. To have an arsenal of relief in terms of spiritually minded friends and the counsel of others. We haven't learned, Lord, to keep revenge in check. We haven't learned to work toward restoration, reconciliation. But, Lord, it is the righteous thing to do, and I pray with all of my heart that we would be released from our prison cages of bitterness and unforgiveness and act apart from the temperature of the heart, apart from the feelings we might have, to act as a matter of the will in obedience to you, in Jesus' name, amen, 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 amen.